0: Welcome everyone, um, I'm Sam Browse, uh, I'm a regular Labour Outlook contributor, uh, Labour Outlook are uh, the publication organising today's meeting and I'm, like I said I'd like to welcome you all to this event this evening discussing for Socialism, Labour and Ireland, James Connolly's ideas today. Today's forum is part of the Socialist Ideas series organised by Labour Outlook, um, we're a fast-growing website, daily news and views from across the left and those at the real forefront. Of resisting the Tories. And today we'll be taking an in-depth look at the legacy and ideas of James Connolly, who was an Irish Republican, Socialist and Trade Union leader. He was one of the leaders of a 1916 Easter Rising and a vocal opponent of the First World War. We'll be finding out why his ideas continue to inspire today. Although we called this uh, this session some months ago, it's a particularly timed discussion in light of the latest developments in Ireland as prospects for real change grow um, and indeed as the global um, capitalist economic crisis deepens here and around the world. It's also a really necessary discussion for those of us who are interested in building a firmly anti imperialist left here in Britain in light of Britain's colonial role in Ireland and that's why coverage of Ireland has been so central to the work that we do at Labour Outlook and why we think it's important. To discuss this today We're joined by Jim McVeigh of the James Connolly Visitor Centre in Belfast. He's a great advocate of the cause of Irish unity um, and numerous struggles for trade unionism, social justice, peace and equality. We want to have as many questions and comments from the audience as possible. um, Because of the size of the audience today, which is really great, it's hundreds of you joining us. Um, We've got volunteers who are going to be facilitating that through the Q&A function in the Zoom, which you can find down below. So please both post both your comments for discussion and your questions to speakers in the Q and A function. Um, we'll have time for a few rounds of questions um, from the audience after the speakers. Um, now I want to go without further ado uh, to to our speaker for this evening, um, Jim. Jim, over to you. And thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hi everyone. Nice to. I get the opportunity to speak to you. I, I think I have about 20, 25 minutes, is it, maybe, to speak next day about Connolly, and then we're going to have a discussion, and I'd be really interested to hear what people think and any questions you may have. Um, just a little bit about me, myself and my own background. I'm, a, I'm from a working-class Irish Catholic background. I'm from the Falls Road, born Catholic, but not a practicing Catholic haven't been since was about 12 or 13. Ended up, I became involved in the conflict, joined the IRA, ended up in prison several times, was released from prison under the, the terms of the Good Friday Agreement in July 2000. And then I became involved uh, politically in the, in the struggle here um, in Ireland, uh, became involved in Sinn Féin, I've been a big supporter of the process. But I'm also a trade union organiser. I've been a full-time trade union organiser in my own small way trying to follow in Colony's footsteps for just over 10 years now. I'm now an inspector with the ITF which is the International Transport Workers Federation, a global federation of, of transport trade unions. Um, so uh, I, I and I began that part of my life and that part of my, my, uh, my career, I suppose, because I had been inspired by Colony. So uh, that's my, I, I am still a member of Sinn Féin, an active member of Sinn Féin. I was a councillor in Belfast for eight years. And uh, I'm now full-time official with, with the trade union. So that's a little bit about my background. You can ask me anything about that as well when we get to the question. So why Colony? Why, why, why is Colony so important? Or why is he relevant uh, today? I'll tell you why, I think. He is uh, uh, so important um, and so relevant in this modern day. Once in a while, in human history, someone comes along who seems to be able to define the the essential truths of the period of which they live in, to understand the times, to have their finger on the pulse. Of, uh, of the people of the working class, of both their own country and, and indeed internationally someone who is capable of great insights, profound insights, a profound understanding of not just the nature of events, but also has seems to grasp uh, the uh, the way forward and these these people, Men and women are, are quite rare, and we can go back, you know, many, many centuries. But from Marx and Engels right through, some of these people appear in history. And I think Connolly was one of those people. To some extent, he hasn't been recognised for the significance, the significance of his contribution, both intellectually and practically in the early part of the 20th century. And there are a number of specific historical reasons for that. Not least that he was executed by a British firing squad um, in his early 50s. Um, but what's unique about Colin, I think, is when, when we look back to some of our greatest heroes, people on the left, you know, when we look to Marx and Engels and Rosa Luxemburg and Gramsci and you know, Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, whoever they are, whoever your heroes are, they, they, in the past, they have usually been intellectuals. They have usually come from the bourgeoisie themselves and they have benefited from that comfort, that economic comfort and the education that they received and very rarely uh, do... Individuals emerge who have this synthesis of intellectual insight and practical, the practical application of the of the theories. Men and women of not just theory but of practice. Uh, of course, there have, been, there have been great leaders, political, military, and, and of course great intellectuals, philosophers, but rarely have we seen those qualities in the same character. Very rarely. Lenin, Marx, uh, etc. You know, intellectuals, comfortable um, economically, etc. Connolly was 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 very different. He was that rare, very rare combination of intellect and 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 praxis. Uh, he was born eighteen sixty eight in Cowgate, in Edinburgh um uh uh, Little Ireland was the area that he was born and lived in was called Little Ireland if anyone's been in Edinburgh and they know where Cowgate um is there's a little plaque um on the main street Little Ireland no longer is there the the slums have been have been uh, uh removed and replaced moved to somewhere else but uh there's very little to mark where Connolly was born, but he was born in 1868 to an impoverished uh, family. His mother and father were Irish immigrants who had moved to Scotland to find work to feed their family. And like most uh, uh, working class families at that time, he lived a life of poverty. He had the very, very barest of, of educations, left school at a very early age, and went to work for the, uh, the municipal uh, council at the time. And he, despite these handicaps, despite his starting life, Connolly had, had a, a ferocious, uh, ferocious sorry, interest in, in learning and reading and studying. And what's unique about him, I think, in some respects, compared to many of these other great historical figures on the left, in the labour movement, and the global movement, or here in New Zealand, is that he was a self-taught man. Absolutely self-taught. And he went on to, to write a huge body of work uh, over the course of his, of his lifetime. And you can see behind me here, of a number of books. These were published by SIPTU, the biggest Union here in Ireland. And it gives you a sense of the body of work that he was responsible for. He wrote hundreds of articles... He published dozens of of, um, political periodicals here in Ireland and in the US in particular. Um, And some of them, you may have heard of them if you have an interest in Irish history and Irish politics, but Labour and Irish history, the first uh, comprehensive Marxist interpretation of Irish history to that point at least, of course. The Reconquest of Ireland, where you spoke about the uh, not just the political uh, freedom of Ireland, but also the economic uh, freedom of Ireland. Socialism Made Easy, one of the one of the, the best analysis of of practical socialism that I've ever read, certainly. And Labour, Nationality, Religion, where he deals with these this this conflict. The sectarian uh, issues here in Ireland, the the religious differences, but also dealing with the uh, the the essence, the values of 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 socialism, and many 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 more. And and the really interesting thing about these articles, if you haven't read them, you should you should get them and read them, is that they are really really insightful. You know, they're not just you know good articles, good political articles from the time. But they have stood the test of time. On most of the contemporary issues of of, of his of his day, well, which bridged two or three decades of, of active struggle. Conley was right. And almost every not all of them of course he wasn't a a seer. He wasn't uh, he didn't have some crystal ball, but he he was correct in his analysis and the prognosis that, that he suggested to many of the big issues. You mentioned the First World War, when most of the socialists of Europe uh, were, were swept up in a wave of, of jingoism and nationalism, Connolly stood against it. You know? And not only did he stand against it intellectually and wrote about it and spoke about it, but, but he, he sacrificed his life. He did what the, very few of them did, was that he joined the other leaders of the rebellion in Dublin in 1916. Not simply as a, a, a military uh, putsch or a, a military rebellion against British rule in Ireland, but he made it very clear that, that uh, what he wished to see, that he wished to start a conflagration that he described that would sweep across Europe and dethrone the uh, the aristocracies, the oligarchies uh, of the time that that drove the world into the horrendous slaughter, the industrial slaughter of the Second World War, uh, but not that, and not just that issue. So many other issues. He was he was he was correct, and too many for me to to go into. It, but but he he was on the right side of history, and on the right side. Of most of the big contemporary debates of the time within the very broad labour movement, socialist movement, not just in Britain and Ireland and in Europe, but in uh, across the world, and I'll talk a little bit about that uh, that that shortly. So that's what that's what makes him quite unique, and and his writings, his ideas, his his uh, strategies, and that he he suggested. Have stood the test of time. Many of them, most of them, much more than many other leaders of of, of that period. And he, uh, during the course of his life, he 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 obviously left Scotland. He had been swept up in the in that early labour movement of the early twentieth century in places like Edinburgh and Dundee. There were quite a quite a lot of uh, European immigrants who had uh, fled their various countries, intellectuals, you know, people with with uh huge personalities and highly respected socialists who found themselves in living in, in Scotland or England, and they all began to communicate. And Conley as a young ma became involved in in that movement and began to mix with the with, with these Emigrees um, um, living in places like, like Dundee, for example, and he joined that movement and that's where he cut his teeth in terms of of him finding his place in in the world and and what he believed in. And of course, he 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 coming from a good Irish family in Scotland, he he considered himself Irish uh, more than anything, more than Scottish, certainly not British, if you don't mind me saying. But uh, he 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 considered himself Irish. He had a deep affection. And um, while he was stationed, it's why he believed that while he was sta- he joined the British Army as a young man, as many working class men did to to see the world and, and uh, earn some money for themselves or for their families. He had joined the British Army, and it was where he met his 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 future wife Lily um, in Ireland, and uh, he sank. His roots there, but of course, um, and he was responsible for setting up the Irish Republican Socialist Party, the first uh, party of its kind in in Ireland. And he published he and a small number of others published a, a program, a socialist program, very detailed program in terms of how they envisaged this this uh, this new society in in, in Ireland, but. Connolly was a was an internationalist, and he was a trade unionist. I think more than anything else, I think Connolly was a was a militant trade unionist. If, if I was the as an Irish Republican, as someone who was who was involved in the IRA, for example, and was in prison, etc., Conley has, has been characterised as the Irish rebel. There's a famous song here now called uh, "James Connolly, the Irish Rebel," and and, and it's sung in in pubs and clubs, and it's a very popular number. But it, it, it sort of does Connelly in injustice because he was much more than just an Irish rebel. He was a, a revolutionary. Uh, when he joined uh, Pierce and Clark and the other signatories of the Irish Proclamation in the GPO in 1916, he said uh, that he wanted to strike a match and set a fire would burn across europe and the workers would rise up and um and overthrow the ruling classes Uh, so for him it was an international international act of solidarity and proletarian solidarity very very important in trying to understand why he was there and how he ended in 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 that place but also in his life he he became involved in the very early trade union movement on these two islands and he was very close to some of the. He was very close to Keir Hardie, for example, one of the, the probably the founding father, one of the founding fathers and mothers of the modern British Labour Party. Um, he he was intimately close to Hardy and many of those key 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 figures, and uh, he became involved in the in the new trade union movement as well. And that's really when he came into his own. He became a full time. Trade union organizer, particularly here in Ireland, the the, the docker dock workers of uh, of England, particularly in Liverpool, uh, you know the, the the strong links between um, Ireland and Edinburgh and Glasgow, but also with Liverpool, in particular the close proximity, of the ports, the shipping trade between the two islands. That uh, Jim Larkin was sent over to Belfast in the early part of the 20th century, in the 1800s, to organize the dock workers in Belfast. And this is where he met Connelly. And they became firm partners in that endeavour. And um, he he threw himself into the work of organizing um, workers into a militant trade union. And it was it was here in Ireland, they broke from their... The, the British uh, trade union and trade unions, and formed the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, the first, the first great militant general trade union of its time. And all these things are, 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 you know, they're matter of fact to us now. But the idea of one big militant trade union, which would in, in, encompass all workers, up until that point, most trade unions had been skilled Guilds were skilled workers cooperated together to the to the to the uh, exclusion of everyone else. So the vast majority of workers um, weren't wanted and weren't welcome in, in those very early trade unions. Um, and in fact, they were looked down upon by, by by many of these skilled trade unions, if they could be called at a time. So Connolly was instrumental in in the establishment of the first big. General Trade Union here in Ireland, the Irish transport and general workers union, along with uh, Jim Larkin. And uh, they they were involved, they instigated some of the biggest battles of that of, of working class battles of that time, the 1907 Dockers and, and Workers' Strike in Belfast. And of course, then the lockout in in Dublin in 1913, when they when the, the bosses locked the organized workers out and a, and a battle then ensued for they'd lost it lasted for six months 68 months which they lost unfortunately largely because of a lack of solidarity from within the aristocracy of labor in, in, in england at the time um, but that's a that's a whole different story but during that whole period colony uh, lived a life of poverty and no, you know he had committed himself to this life and and of course, like most of the leaders of, of the militant trade union movement at that time, what happened was he was blackballed. It was impossible for him to find work to support his own family. And it's not like, if you don't mind me saying, the trade union leaders of today, who are, who are uh, well uh, remunerated in terms of salaries and pensions, etc., A different world than The leaders of the militant trade union movement were revolutionaries. First and foremost, with no care for self-gain. There was no gain in it. There was no pay. Connolly lived from hand to mouth, week to week, month to month, most of his life. He knew, he knew nothing but poverty. His family knew nothing but poverty because of his commitment to the trade union movement at the time. And that's something that we, we, we have to keep in mind. Very different type of, of leaders in a different world in a different game. And as a con as a consequence of that, colony ended up emigrating to America and he, he travelled to he had been invited to uh talk at a number of uh Socialist Party of of, of America gigs and he travelled to the US and he was invited to take up a role as an organizer. When he got there it it, it disappeared, evaporated, and he was left basically destitute. But he like most he struggled on and he made the best of where he was. And his family followed behind him, eventually, to the U.S. And uh, he spent quite a number of years in the States. And while he was in the States, he, he, he continued that, that work. And he was one of the founding fathers and mothers of the first big general union in America, the, the, the wobblies of the industrial workers of the world. Um, the first, the very first, probably the most important, I mean, of its kind in America, the Wobblies. If, if if you like movies, you should watch a movie called One, M A T E W A N. It's a it's a movie about the rise of militant labour. Fantastic movie, but some big stars in it. Called One, M A T E W A N. If you're interested in that in that period, the late eighteen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds in the US, when there was a a vibrant, militant trade union movement, a socialist movement that, that was challenging for for power. It was, you know, it's hard to imagine America now with a, with such a powerful movement, but at that time it, it, it was. And Conley was one of the founding fellows of the world. And not only, again, once again, he wasn't simply an intellectual. He continued to write. He continued to publish. But he was an organiser. He organized uh, the Wobblies in New York, the transport, Eric, my, my, my work, the transport workers uh, across New York, and at that time, again, we have to remember that the poorest, the most numerous class were the unskilled workers who had come from every part of the globe to to, to New York to make their a new life to themselves and whatever. And uh, he, he was one of the first people to organize those people. And from what I read about and what I understand, he was adored by many, certainly appreciated by many of, of the working class. And what was unique about him as well is that, again, it's a mark of his intellect and is that he, he, the two or three of the main communities that he had to organize, Italians, the Irish, obviously. The Germans and the Jewish community, who were big, probably the biggest ethnic groups, in, in, and he learned German. He learned to speak German and to write German, taught himself. He learned a modicum of, of Italian and um, he also learned Yiddish, some Yiddish, right? And he wrote in these lang- languages. It's incredible. Think about that. Self taught man. You know, he wasn't an intellectual or he hadn't the money to go to university and whatever. He taught himself out of necessity how to communicate with, as you can imagine, these tight communities in New York at the time. And um, he published notices and articles. He spoke at events in some of these languages. Incredible, incredible intellect and capacity and to, to, to learn and learn. And again, he was one of the first people to say, you know, uh, one of the first leaders to recognise that, because up until that point, most of the of these groups had organised. Even those people on the left had organised within their own ethnic group. You know, the Italians together, the Irish together, et cetera. And um, he was one of the few who who, not just theoretically, but also practically, began to to unite. Uh, the working class of, of New York. And then he became a full-time organiser for the Socialist Party of America, and he travelled to the US for, for most of a year at, at one point, um, speaking about trade unionism, uh, speaking about socialism. And and one of the things that strikes me about him as well was that it was if, if you watch that movie Matwan or Matawan, I'm not too sure how it's pronounced, it was a very dangerous job, again not like today this was a time when the when the the, the capitalist class um, the oligarchy, the American oligarchy if you like, the new American oligarchy had almost unlimited power you know they had the Pinkertons they had groups of people they could hire to assassinate, to kill people to murder, to brutalize, to break strikes, to try and break strikes etc. This was a very very dangerous time for uh, for anyone to be an organizer, um, and many of the early uh, organizers of the Wobblies in the states were killed, and in Montana, and you'll see one of those was in the, the oil, or sorry, in the coal fields of uh, the Midwest of America, where where labor people were the first to be killed by agents of of the capitalist class. So, so then man had, had never lost his love or his graph or. Ireland, that's where his heart was, and an opportunity came up. He was invited back to Ireland, and he grasped the opportunity, and he, and he and his family returned to Ireland in 1911. And I'm glad to say that he ended up he ended up in Belfast. He was asked by by Larkin to organise the workers of Belfast, and um, he he and his family secured a house on the front of the Falls Road. Just about a hundred yards from where the Connolly Centre is, um, and it's still there. It's a dental surgery now, but the original home is still there, and uh, that's where he lived up until his execution in, in in 1916. But for that period, he was on the front lane in Belfast, and he he once again, not only did he write really insightful uh, articles and books about how to deal with the sectarian division in, in, in the north and in Belfast in particular. But he was also a practitioner. He was one of the, he, he, he was probably the first and most important, after Larkin at least anyway, organisers of the workers in Belfast. And they organised the women in the mills. At that time there may have been as many as 30,000, mostly women uh, working in the mills in Belfast. And, and the conditions were absolutely horrendous. The early deaths, the accidents, very very poor wages, uh, etc. Belfast at the time, w- while it is sort of I suppose, recognized as an industrial powerhouse, of course it had it exhibited all the worst of the conditions of that, of that period as well in terms of hours of work and um, and the, the conditions were. So Connolly was very successful in organising the, the workers of Belfast and and trying to overcome that that sec that sectarianism but it was a battle that he that it, of course he never he never won and we're still living with it today but of course he he whenever he heard whenever the first world war began I'm just gonna to start to round up here whenever the first world war began we now know when we look back and what what happened most of the socialists the the great leaders of the of the labor movement across Europe Retreated into uh, their uh, their own nationalist positions and supported the war for their own for whatever reasons for, for any number of reasons. And Connolly was one of the few who opposed the war. wrote about and uh, opposed it. And whenever he became aware. He was also one of the founding members of the Irish Citizen Army, which was one of the first, I suppose, um, armed labour organisations from that period the first uh, uh, And when he joined the, the, the other leaders in the, in the GPO in 1916, he had no illusions about uh, some of the people that he, he had joined with in the rebellion at the time. He was very critical of the bourgeois nationalists who waxed lyrical, wrote wonderful poems, sang beautiful songs about uh, Ireland, but could walk by uh, a beggar on the street, You know, could could ignore the horrible conditions in the tenements in Dublin. Uh, he, he, he was really scathing, about that type of nationalism, um, and was very critical of those people. And I've often wondered, like like anyone here in Ireland, what would have happened if Connolly, Connolly was was one of the last to be executed during that period. And just when he was executed, the 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 I suppose the public uproar about the executions, the the British cabinet became aware of the damage it was doing to their own, I suppose, position. And they they ordered the generals to stop the executions. Connolly was the last to But I've often wondered what would have happened had he had he lived and had he survived. Would we have even had the tragic events that followed? Yes, the War of Independence, but then the Civil War and the split within the, 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 the movement here. And I've often said that one of... Connolly's greatest protege of that period before his death was another uh, uh, Irish republican, called Liam Mallows. If you if you don't know much about him, or there's a wonderful book written by C. D. Greeds called Liam Mallows and the Irish Revolution. But Liam Mallows was executed by the new Free State government. Um, Michael Collins had already been killed by the states, but by the new Free State government on the eighth of December. 1922, in the middle of the of the Civil War, and he was uh, he was protege. He, he was by this time he was a man in his early 40s, right? But he had known Conley for for a decade or more before his, his own execution. And I've often said that had Conley survived the raising, he probably would have been sent to the Free State firing squad by those conservative nationalists who eulogised him in death, but sent his protege to, a, to an early grave, to a firing squad. And Mallows was a, was a socialist, leg colony, and uh colony surveyed, I think, the new regime, the new conservative regime that he predicted. He, he, one of the most famous phrases, I'm just finishing this, one of the most famous phrases or quotes from colony is it, uh, it? It starts with a not remember, but he's, this paragraph starts with "Whip it up for liberty, whip it up for liberty," says the rack ranting landlord. "Whip it up for liberty," says the greedy capitalist. Right, and he goes on to say, and in this new Ireland, it will be the uh, the landlord and the the police, but this time they will be wearing an Irish harp. And a green uniform, and they will be evicting you from your home or from your land. He so, says, "So whoop it up for liberty." Says a man who won't touch socialism. Something to that effect. But a really insightful analysis, and really, um, when you think of it, he he saw the dangers in the in the Irish revolution. He he saw and he recognised the role of the of the new conservative class who wanted the British army to leave, who wanted the, the the British government to leave, right? But they simply wanted to take the place of their place at the top of the pay. And there's old photographs now that period from the new free state leadership, the people in the cabinet of the time, and there's a couple of cracking photographs of them in their their top hats and their keeled suits and their, their shiny brogues and and the, the, you know it reminds me of that photograph you no know, of uh, Boris Johnson and all those arseholes in was it Oxford or Cambridge I'm not sure. Remember that that famous photograph? There's a photograph of the new Free State government sort of dressed like that, like going to a ball or going to something. And it just you know so Connolly was the lost the really lost leader of our revolution that we needed. He was our Sandino or, or Lennon or or you know, all these people who had, you know, wonderful, wonderful insights and but were taken from us much too early and and, and we lost the benefit of their great intellect. But when he says by simply saying his body of work, huge body of work, and almost and he's a wonderful He's not an intellectual. It's not like reading Das Kapital. <laughs> Conley Connolly is much more accessible, still very insightful, but as a working-class man, as a trade union organiser, he knew the value of communication, and uh, he had a wonderful lyrical quality to his work. Uh, but on almost every issue of that period, he was right. So if you're looking for answers to today, go and look to Connolly. Okay, Jenny. Thank
0: you. Thanks for that, Jim. That was really interesting. I didn't know the connection between uh, Connolly and the Wobblies either. That was oh, totally amazing. Yeah. New to, yeah. We we are
1: we are supported by the Connolly Centre. We we have managed to raise a considerable amount of money from the American Trade Union Movement, and I didn't realize this. Uh, I'm not allowed in the America, by the way, because of the Patriot like, Act. I'm a terrorist as far as they're concerned, but because of my my past convictions. But when we did meet a lot of these guys, that they come over now every year to support the Colony Center, and they and they make they make considerable donations to the role of the center. See the amount of guys who men and women who, who in America who trace their roots back to Colony. They, you know, they've got portraits of Colony up on their wall in their head offices. You know, we we underestimate the significance of Colony and its contribution to world. Uh, trade unionism militant trade
0: unionism in particular. i've got had an f- influx of questions come in and yeah. uh, uh, on exactly exactly that topic in fact but before i go to those i just want to bring uh sean uh sean in who's uh one of the team like me behind labour outlook he's just going to tell us a little bit more about the organizers of today and what you can do to support us and then we'll get into get into um everyone's questions so over to you sean
2: Thank you, Sam. Um, I'll be very quick because I know we have got lots of questions in after that really interesting introduction from Jim. Um, The first thing I want to say is, uh, if you don't already, then you should um, read Labour outlook, and you should share its story and forward them on to your friends and family and comrades and contacts, uh, and spread the good word. And it's a really good way of finding out about great stories across from across the labour movement and uh, and socialist movements. So do that, uh, and then probably the most important thing I want to say to you is that you can see that actually events like today and all the other Labour Outlook uh, events and its website are actually organised by volunteers and we put on events like this we want to carry on putting on events like this and organizing them and keeping them free and open to everyone but actually even though there's not a physical space it's very expensive to do that just hosting and streaming this costs a lot of money emailing you all so that you all are kept up to date with all the events that all costs money uh, from a mailing list provider so I know times are tight but Those of you that can donate 10, 15, 20 pounds so that we can keep doing events like tonight, so that we can keep them free, keep putting them on um, YouTube and making podcasts of them and getting them out here there and everywhere uh, that would be fantastic so there are links to do that in the chats there are also links uh, for to where you can follow Labour Outlook and I would really encourage you to do that as an action from tonight if you've enjoyed this brilliant meeting and you would like to see more events like this thank you.
0: Thanks very much for that and yeah just to echo what Sean said definitely do follow those links and donate if you can Um, we're Definitely a people-powered uh, website, um, and we and we need your help um, to keep putting on these fantastic events. Um, we've got about twenty-five minutes for questions, twenty minutes for questions. Um, so, Jim, I'm going to take them in rounds of two, if that's all right. And I'm going to sort of abuse the chair by asking my own first, um, but then <laughs> then go into maybe a broader question about those international issues you talked about. So, my question was really for Connolly. What was the relation? And you touched on this a bit at the end about, you know, about you, you, it's no good just, just slapping a harp on the sort of institutions, of the state, and things like that. But for Connolly, what was the relationship between the demands for socialism and that demand for sort of national liberation and independence from British rule? And then I've got a question from Daniel um, in the audience, which says If I remember correctly, um, Marx attributed great significance to Ireland as being um, lever to the lever of a revolution in Britain, which would spread elsewhere. And you sort of talked about this in your remarks before. Did Connolly share this analysis? Um, the international situation has, of course, changed enormously in several ways since Connolly's and Marx's lifetimes, but it's similar in other ways how should we think today about Ireland's and Britain's place in advancing, advancing socialist causes? So one on the sort of national question and one on the sort of international question.
1: Well, of course, th- th- there are some on the left, historically, who criticised Connolly for joining the rebellion and believed that in doing so, he had betrayed the cause of, of socialism because he had joined with uh, nationalists um, not all of whom were, by the way, were, were conservative Nazis. There were, there were many, many progressive people and progressive elements um, involved in the Irish Revolution at that time. But Conley was right. Conley had this, I think, which is a sort of commonly recognized understanding of the relationship between colonialism, imperialism, and the, the survival of the capitalist system globally, particularly in the, in the, in the, uh, the, the capitalized West. And I remember when I was in prison. Obviously, we had a lot of time to consider these matters and and read a great deal. And Lenin himself, while uh, Trotsky, and I have no problem with Trotsky. I'm not a Trotskyist, but I see the value in much of what he did and what he said. Um, without becoming a Trotskyist or a Leninist, um, but Trotsky dismissed the rebellion in in Ireland at the time and said it was just it was a just a, an irrelevant bourgeois military pooch, right? Lenin didn't. Lenin wrote uh, a significant article about about colonialism and the importance of colonialism and anti-imperialism, or anti-colonial struggles, but the significance that that would play, and what he believed and what he hoped, of course, would be the collapse of the of the capitalist system across the world, etc. So. Lenin was very complimentary of Connolly and, and, the, and the rebellion and, and defended the significance of that and recognized the importance. And, and by the course, by the end of the Second World War, most le- people on the left across the world recognized that perhaps it would the, the, the downfall of, of, of old Faisal capitalism would come from the colonies. You know this groundswell of of discontent and armed struggles and industrial strife, etc., etc. Of course, it didn't quite work out like that. But but yeah. So, I, I Conley again, just the point I was making. Conley got it right, I think, in my opinion. He understood the relationship between anti-colonial struggles, the significance of that, while retaining his critical faculties. That's what I'm saying. if he when he wrote. Whip it up for liberty. It was a sarcastic, I, ironic, um, sort of dramatic characterization of those bourgeois nationalists here in Ireland who went on to to construct this conservative state, the new free state in Ireland, um, and everything that that, that they did. Um, so I, I think he was correct. He he understood that relationship. He was criticised in the decades following it by some on the left, the British left in particular they said he threw his lat in with and some in Ireland here and there, but I but I think they were wrong. I I think he joined to insert his politics and the politics of uh of the socialists of the time, militant trade unionists of the time in Dublin and other places. And and he and he at the time he said to the to the members of the Irish and Citizen Army who who were a significant component of the Military force that took over Dublin in 1916. Hold on to your rifles, he says, because we might need them after the we we, we force the British now. to leave. Of course, that, that that the first stage they fell at the first hurdle. But but he ha- he was prescient enough to say to warn of the bourgeois the potential for counter-revolution, which is exactly what happened.
0: Thanks for that answer. Um, there was that second question as well, just from um, Daniel Herbert, about this lever of the lever of a revolution in Britain and sort of Ireland's, yeah. Ireland and Britain's place in advancing socialist yeah. causes today. Sure yeah.
1: of, I mean, I'm sure the average age of people here is, is in the 20, early 20s or mid-20s, but when I was coming to socialist theory as a young prisoner in the H. blocks of Long Cash in the 1980s, there was a couple of seminal works by some people on the left in Britain. And one of them was a book called Ireland the Key to the English Revolution or something like that. But really what it was saying was that, that it was arguing within the broad labour movement at the time in the 1970s, 1980s, that the conflict in Ireland, um, supporting the anti-imperialist struggle in Ireland, was also critical to the future and the fortune of the of the. Uh, the labour movement in Ireland and it could be it it could have been like Vietnam you know that that the agitation around the war in Ireland may have helped I suppose accelerate uh, change within Britain and so in some way and in the same way perhaps that the anti-Vietnam war movement helped energize uh, people on the left in America at the time so yeah I, I think there is a there is a link. Of course, times are different now. There is no war, and it, it is difficult to mobilise people on the basis of, well, let's have a border poll. Let's have let, let the people of Ireland have a vote and let's decide. It's not quite as it's not quite as exciting or as dramatic as as you know that when the war was all going and people were being killed and there was horrible terrible violence on the streets, et cetera, et cetera. But um, but yes, we still we still believe. That that both our 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 futures and our fortunes are inextricably linked, and if you go back even to the Chartists of, of the nineteenth century in, in in Britain, many of them were Irish immigrants, and they recognised the importance, and the old Fenians in Ireland recognised the importance of synergy between both struggles and the importance of solidarity and support uh, between the two ends, and I think that. That is certainly very true today. It's just not as, perhaps, as urgent as it would have seemed 25 years ago or 35 years or 40 years whenever, you know, the, the, this part of the island was was engulfed in, in mayhem.
0: Um, that segues quite nicely, the the issue you raised about the border pole, um, to a couple of other questions we've had as well. So these are kind of more kind of less about the history or like the, the, the history of the thinking of Conley or the biography and more about... Kind of political situation today as a comrade uh, from young labour who's asked um, young people across the north of Ireland are more in favour of re- reunification than previous generations as well as being more supportive of um, progressive and left-wing policies do you think there are or what are the specific factors driving that and driving like the fact that young people um, support that change and, yeah, and, and, all,
1: the, all the demographics, mm-hmm. all the polls, all the analysis of the past decade have seen this huge um, uh, movement uh, within that younger demographic towards, for example, supporting Sinn Féin, supporting Irish unity. But, of course, it would be wrong just to simply narrow that that activism or that, that those aspirations to Irish unity because you're right, there is a... It, it, it tends to be the most progressive section of, of, of society. They're the people, you know, the, the new voters, the 20s, the 30s, and the early 40s. That, that Almost every poll has been done in the past decade. They were the people responsible for uh, marriage equality. They were the people responsible for, thank God, there's a bit of a, 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 a I suppose, an irony me, me saying that, in the uh, downfall of the Catholic Church, of the institution of the church. They were the people that, 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 I mean, it's hard to believe that Ireland 50 years ago, certainly the south of Ireland, the Catholic community, north and south, were enthralled to the Catholic church, you know, and these old conservative men who ran the church and ran by proxy, effectively, the Irish, Irish society. But now it's been turned on its head. The Irish Church has collapsed, and, and uh, people have no people have no longer have this uh, unwavering respect for the institution of the church and the priests, etc., etc. And that would that, that's an incredible change. That's like an incredible cultural as well as political change. And uh, and also most young people in the Republican movement, just for people who in Sinn Fein, would be exactly like yourselves. Socialists of one shape or another, however you want to describe, or that, on what wing you may be or whatever, progressive. They're looking to the world for. They're inspired by other struggles. They're inspired by other uh, movements. They 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 want to see fundamental change. They don't want to see just tinkering around. that. So and and most of the of our modern leaders, now, Sinn Féin, now that we, Jerry Adams is no longer the president of Sinn Féin, Oh, Jerry was very, very progressive and led, led this, this change within the Republican movement. But Pierce Stockarty, Mary Lou MacDonald, Ketling Function, Ono Bryn, you know, people who, who, if the polls are true, will hopefully will be leading the next uh, government in the south of Ireland, right? People who will be Pierce he's from Donegal, uh, still a relatively young man, is a socialist in Connolly's uh, tradition, has a portrait of Connolly up in his office. He will he will be the Minister for Finance. Owen of some of you may have seen on, heard on, read stuff, I know Owen very well. Uh, um socialist in Connolly's tradition. All these people, the the Republican movement has changed drastically from the early nineteen seventies when it was a broad church and a very broad church politically, ideologically. So yeah, I mean um there is a a strong link between youth and I use that in the broadest sense, not just you know people in their teens or early twenties, but that that who are who are driving this 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 progressive demand. And do you know what's brilliant to see on Twitter? As I fight with them all the time on Twitter and here in Ireland anyway, right? All these old conservative fuckers, right? Who were writing for the, the the Tory press, the Irish Tory press, right? Who were you know highly regarded and highly respected and lauded and fucking worshipped, you know, and and their their views and their values and their politics and their ideas, you know. It 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 they dominated the, the public space. See now people don't get excuse the they don't give a fuck about them and I, I love it. You see on oh, when you see it on Twitter and I see people who were once the editors of the Irish Times or the of the Irish Independent and you know forty years ago these these people you you know held huge influence politically. Now, see young people that don't give a fuck about them. They're sneering at them. And the best example of that is the Wolfe Tones. Anybody who knows Irish rebel music, there's an old group called the Wolfe Tones after Theobald Wolfe Tone, and they they they're old men in their seventies. It's incredible. I don't particularly like them myself, right? But they're still a, they're a rebel band, right? And um, they play old old rebel songs, and the famous one, uh, "Up the Ra." You know if have you've have you heard that that that's a it's like a chorus that. that if you go to a Celtic and Rangers match, I'll hear all the Celtic ones singing, oh, ah, up there, are right? It's an nice Irish Republican sort of slogan, but uh, they were playing at electric picnic last week. I don't know why they were playing electric picnic because there, there, there were just three men in their 70s on stage, right? But they drew the biggest crowd. 30,000 people squeezed into the tent and outside the tent that they were performing in. And... Uh, sang along to all these rebel songs and really what that was them sending a message to the establishment and saying, fuck you we're not going to be told what to sing and what to think and who to support, you know, so there is a there's already a bit of a revolution taking place in terms of the the, the influence that the old uh, establishment had, you know there's 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 something happening on the ground significant on the ground and hopefully it will Manifest itself in a in a political revolution within the next couple of years here in Ireland, and if we can get a government in the South that is committed to Irish unity and has the resources, the diplomatic resources, the financial resources, have the if you don't see notice, maybe have the balls or whatever else, men and women to stand up to the the British government and say, no, we're not we're not taking that. We don't agree, and we'll use our influence. With the american government with united nations blah 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 you know so no there's something very exciting happening there at the moment with young people in particular
0: i think we're running out of time we've, in fact, we've got one more minute left so i'm gonna um draw the discussion to a close today i think that's a really great way to end too on this is a really exciting time in ireland at the moment
1: very good things could happen yeah
0: but listen jim thanks so much for joining us today and um just to say uh, to everyone else as well who's um, on the call, thanks so much for taking part too. And please make a donation if you can, as Sean said, so that we can keep exploring these ideas and uh, throughout this ideas series. Um, for many of us active in solidarity with the Irish cause over the years and decades, I think today's discussion is like r- r- real further confirmation of a need to step up that work in, in, in the UK, including through building links to the left. And progressive movements in Ireland, and making the case for a border poll here too, um, including in the Labour Party and broader Labour movement as well. And please make sure you follow us on Twitter, um, Facebook, and all the rest of it. Um, we're we're at Labour Outlook um, to keep up to date with what we're doing, and um, support to the work of the James Connolly Visitor Centre too, um, Labour for Irish Unity as well, and all those who are working for peace and justice in Ireland. Um, Can't so you thanks. imagine?
1: Oh I go for it, novel. sure. You've got...
0: Oh absolutely. If you've got a novel to plug, absolutely.
1: <laughs> it's a novel. It deals with the mother and baby homes. It's like a political thriller. It's doing quite well, but it's called Stolen Faith by published by O'Brand Press.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and, and buy Jim's book too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks all.
1: And um and My we'll nice. see you later. Cheers. All Thanks best. for coming. Slango Foy and Irish.